Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Uh, my name is Asa. I'm a general manager here in AWS. I'm responsible for transfer for SFTP and a few other services like Storage Gateway and Data Sync. Excited to have here presenting with me Smita, who's a product manager for the transfer service, uh, Doug and Atul, um, our customer speakers. SFTP, it's a 20-year-old protocol. And when we first started thinking about it, we were like, really, should we be thinking about SFTP? And then we saw customers with a large number of applications. They're building data lakes, uh, CRM applications, exchanging data with third parties and partners, um, doing ERP applications. All of these protocols do have some aspect of SFTP used for secure transactions across vendors and partners. And it's a commonly used protocol specifically in um, regulated industries or where customers want to exchange data within, with third parties or even within organizations. And excited here in this session to tell you about the fully managed SFTP service that we launched at reInvent last year. So I'll give you a very quick overview of the service, uh, and then we'll describe some of the features of the service that were um, delivered during, the, during this past year, uh, go deep into some of the details of some of these capabilities, and then Doug is going to talk to us about his experience at Bose uh, when they moved from an on-premises SFTP service over to AWS transfer um, in AWS. And then Atul is going to talk about their experience at Verisk, where they had, a fully they had their own SFTP service in AWS, uh, which they migrated into um, the transfer service. So we launched uh, Transfer for SFTP uh, a year ago at reInvent uh, 2018. And we built the service to be a fully managed SFTP service that allows customers to move data managed through SFTP into S3. Uh, we had a few key tenets that we um, took in, uh, into account as we were designing the service. The first was to make it seamless to migrate existing workflows over to the cloud. Uh, second was obviously to focus on security and compliance since uh, that's a big requirement to support uh, SF for SFTP being used in these transactions. And the third one was to not just enable the lift and shift, but make this data available in native AWS formats. So you can not only move your existing workflows to the cloud, but do more uh, processing and management and start using that for AWS-based applications. So those were the top key tenets in terms of features that we were focusing on. In addition to that, uh, the service is fully managed, which means that you don't need to worry about scaling the service, providing high availability, uh, having the elasticity based on demand growth, et cetera. So it's a fully managed service. It's cost effective, designed to be priced so that you pay only for what you use, like all it, um, AWS usage-based services. And it's designed to be simple. So how does it work? You have SFTP users today. Um, in, in most environments, you, uh, today you either have an SFTP service on-prem, uh, either DIY or existing on-prem vendors-based services, or you have a service that you run and deploy in your own EC2 instances in the cloud. With transfer, the uh, basic idea is to convert your existing endpoint to the SFTP service in, in AWS. You assign a bucket in which you want the data to arrive, and that's it. That's all you need to do. 
There's no requirement to change any of your users, the credentials, the server endpoints. So existing workflows, clients continue to work as they are. And once the data lands into S3, it's native object format. So you can then do your um, workload processing, connect it with data lakes, uh, or archive it in any of the um, uh, S3 storage classes. So it's as simple as that. Uh, in terms of using the service, you go to the console uh, or use the API to con connect your endpoint to the uh, endpoint within AWS. And setting up the users is also very easy. We have a number of methods in which you can move your existing identity providers so the users get migrated automatically to the uh, service itself. And that's it, it's just three simple steps. A number of customers have adopted the service. I'm hoping many of you here have been using the service. Thank you for all the feedback. And uh, over the year, uh, we've added a number of features. Let me give you a quick summary of that. So when we launched the service, we um, provided the ability to integrate with a number of identity providers, including Microsoft AD, LDAP, or their existing databases in-house. We also connected with the Route 53, so your existing IP address and domain name can be transferred over to the service. So your you know, uh, sftp.mycompany.com just gets transferred over to AWS. And it works with all standard clients. So that was what we launched with uh, last year. Over the course of the year, we um, introduced the ability to also import the server's host key. So your authentication mechanisms port over to the service. You can map your IP addresses as well. And we introduced a new feature around mapping logical directories on top of S3 buckets. And Smitha is going to go into a, a more details on how that works. But with this, now not only can you migrate your clients and credentials and host names, as well as your identities and scripts. So, it's almost like turn off a switch from on-prem to uh, a fully managed service. Uh, at launch, we had PCI and uh, uh, compliance and HIPAA eligibility. Obviously, all the data that gets land, uh, stored into your S3 bucket can be encrypted using um, uh, SSE or KMS encryption. And it integrates with uh, CloudWatch, CloudTrail, so you have a full uh, log of the data that's being transacted through the service, which is important from a compliance and security perspective. We also now have SOC compliance, and earlier in the year we uh, introduced support for VPC endpoints. So you can have your service within your uh, VPC, and that gives you an additional layer of um, control over the service as well. In terms of AWS integrations, as I mentioned before, the data is, uh, uh, the files that are uploaded through the service get transferred into S3 objects. If your bucket has lifecycle management, that data can be transitioned if you're just using it for storing the data. But it's more likely that you want to do some automated processing on it, either into a data lake or for other transformation uh, on that data. Uh, you can create uh, notifications either through SNS or Lambda. So once the data gets uploaded, you can automatically trigger workloads on that. And from an authentication perspective, it connects up with IAM, so you can create roles uh, and access privileges for different users connecting into the service. Uh, we also introduced uh, earlier in the year uh, cloud formation templates, and we have a number of customers automating uh, creation of their um, SFTP workflows using uh, cloud formation. Um, I'm going to switch over to Smitha, who will um, give a deep dive into some of these features and describe uh, how they operate. Thank you. Thank you, Asa. Um, 
So if you heard Acer talked about uh, seamless migration, right? The important part of you want to move your users. The most difficult part of changing the workflow is having your users change what they do, whether it's their credentials or host names or clients um, or even the scripts. So I'm going to go into detail on some of these features um, in the last, uh, you know, at launch and since launch that we've uh, developed so that, you know, we can give you uh, a way to just migrate your users without them having to even change anything at all. So these are the four features. Um, I'd like to first talk about the identity provider integration. Um, so yeah, so the idea about an identity provider integration is so that you don't, you're, you know, as I said, your end users, you know, if they're using a particular username and password, uh, they continue to use that uh, in the same way. And, we, and this is done because we give you a way to directly um, integrate any identity provider that you use via API Gateway and Lambda. Um, a little bit of context, um, the service, uh, you can use, you, ha you have two options to authenticate your users, you know, with the service. One is what we call service-managed authentication. Um, in this mode, you would store your users and their identities and their SSH keys directly within the service. So as this diagram illustrates, you know, you'd first set up your server, add those users, assign you know, their authorization via IAM roles and policies, and then when your users log in, we'd use that information to successfully authenticate and authorize them. The other one, which uh, we like to call bring your own um, authentication, the way this works is you would first set up an API gateway and Lambda. Um, the, the Lambda would query, would have a query set up uh, to look up your internal identity provider, right? And that could be replaced by any one of the options, which I'll go over in the next slide. After you do that, you would create your server, uh, and you would tell us, when you create the server, you tell the server what API gateway URL to use uh, to look up these users. And then when your users come to log in, we would use that API gateway endpoint to say, okay, is this user, can we authenticate them? And the Lambda will query the identity provider and tell us yes or no. And if so, uh, we will you know, use an IAM role and give them access. So this is kind of how it works. It's uh, a five step, but once you set up that initial API gateway and Lambda authentication, uh, your users are authenticated using that mode. Um, I wanted to go over a few examples of how customers are using the custom identity provider today. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, if you want password authentication, for example, um, you can use a secrets manager solution that we've published, right, with this, with the same kind of architecture. Um, let's say you use Microsoft AD or even AWS managed AD you want to use. We have a few code samples available that you can use and then also customize based on your, how you've set up your internal AD. Uh, let's say you want to, you use one of the third-party um, uh, identity providers like Okta, OneLogin, and Atul will talk about how Verisk uses Okta, for example. So we have CloudFormation templates available on how you can call Okta's API um, and uh, access it in real time. Um, or, you know what, many of you might even have something where you've built in-house, like an, uh, you know, an identity provider. You might have a partner provisioning portal, right, that you use for multiple purposes with your third-party vendors, and you can even hook that up as well. Um, just a few steps on how you would integrate your custom identity provider. Uh, so, you know, the request that comes in from your user, right, they're going to enter their username password. So that's what gets passed in. Uh, that's what we pass into your API gateway endpoint URL. Um, and then the Lambda would that use that information, hey, if credentials match, 
the Lambda would return a response block containing the IAM role, the IAM role for access. Um, SSH keys, in case you're using key-based authentication, uh, you know, we have two options, even within the custom identity provider where you can use password or keys. Um, and then you give us a home directory that tells us where the user would land in your bucket, which location. Um, and then the last one is, takes a little while, yeah, logical directories that we announced this year, which I'll go into more detail in a couple of slides. Um, so when you integrate your identity provider, um, this is just a tip that I uh, usually um, ask users is, um, you know, before you just go directly test from a client directly, we have a test function, right? And we have that capability even through the console. Just kind of to make sure that the wiring all works uh, before you go off and introduce other elements of variability, like how a client would behave or your network or any other things. Um, cool. So I'll jump next right into logical directories uh, for S3. So um, the reason is, you know, you don't, your users don't want to change their scripts, right? So let's see how we can do that with logical directories. So stepping back a little bit, right? Let's, let's look at a scenario where you have some data sets that you want to store in Amazon S3, right? It's an object-based storage. Um, and, you know, you might store it in one bucket. You might store it in th across three buckets. just depends on your architecture, right? And these numbers may have been crunched using some one of the AWS services. Uh, one of them maybe that even Andy just announced this morning, right? And you want to make these data sets available for your end users via SFTP. But your end users want a POSIX-style view of that data, right? They want to be able to see it in a folder structure that's there on the left. Um, and they don't want to change the scripts that they're using because you've been talking to them in this folder structure for years now, and you, they want to keep that the same because it's a lot of pain for them to go back and change scripts that access this data. And that's exactly the reason we introduced logical directories for S3 because it solves for this problem. What you can do is you can map absolute S3 folders to um, any pre-existing path names that you already use with your end users, right? So you might have a really long path in your S3 bucket, but you know, they might just want to see it as slash directory, slash home, slash username. So it gives you that virtual, you, you give them that virtual mapping to absolute paths in the bucket. Additionally, they also get, you also get the benefit of hiding your bucket name, right? It might be important for many of you in your organization where you want uh, to offer that privacy and compliance where you don't want to really um, disclose the bucket name to your third party. And also you can customize these paths, right? Like, so based on who the user is, you can give them a completely different view uh, of, uh, of, of your bucket, right? And in that, in that many case, you can share the same data with multiple users, and you're not really making copies for each user. So if you're a data distributor, you have some common data, you can make that available in one folder in S3, but make it available to multiple users via different paths based on who that user is. Um, a little bit about how it works. Um, what you would do is um, when you set up your user, you would set up a mapping, right? And that mapping has what we call entry and target dictionary, right? The entry says what the user will see, and target says the actual S3 bucket location. And look, this doesn't mean that you're not using IAM anymore. You still use IAM for the S3 bucket access, because that still determines which buckets you'd use, what operations you're allowing them to perform. Uh, using their client, but this one uh, will affect the view that they see of your bucket. So if you see the example that I have here, for example, I have mapped picks, doc, reporting, another path to all these paths in my bucket, but so when my user logs in, um, 
they see uh, that view. Um, a really common use case that I've heard is you know, being able to root um, or you know, really, really lock down my user to their home directory. Um, so in this case, you would just specify the slash, and then you'd map them to a home directory location so that no matter what they do in their client, how much ever they try to traverse up, that client is really locked down to that location in the bucket. They can't go any further. Okay, cool. So that gives us to the next feature that I want to talk about, which is host key import. Um, the two features that we talked about, right? No changes to credentials and scripts. In this case, uh, let's see how your users don't have to change how they identify your server. So how do they identify your server, right? Um, each, so each client has a record of, your, of the server that they're connecting to, their host key, right? They have a file, right? And when the client connects, right, makes a connection, they check whether what, whatever's in that host key file matches with what it's what's being received from the server they're connecting to. And if that, not, that does not match, they usually get this message. And this message is not acceptable in many of the organizations that you may be interacting with, right? So how do we fix this? And that's why we announced um, a feature called Bring Your Own Host Key, right? So you can upload an RSA host key uh, when you create a server or update an existing one. And that way now when your clients connect, and let's say it's a, it's a key that you're already using on-prem or in EC2, uh, you can use the same key, upload it to your server, so when your users connect, they don't see that message anymore because now they identify your server as something they already know about. So let's talk about elastic IP import, right? Because that's another characteristic of your server uh, that is used uh, by your end users to identify it. Um, stepping back a little bit for context, uh, you have a couple of options to host your endpoint today. One is private, so you can host the endpoint within your VPC. The other one is you can make the endpoint internet facing, which, is call, which we call the public endpoint type. So when you host the endpoint within your VPC, it's only accessible within the VPC. Uh, let's say you have clients, you have applications running within the VPC, right, that need SFTP access to S3. You can use it within your VPC. Or you have on-prem applications that connect to your VPC via VPN or Direct Connect, and you can, it, it can use that same VPC endpoint without needing to traverse the internet to get to um, your server. Now with Elastic IP attachment, um, what you can do is if you, if you front the endpoint with an internet-facing NLB uh, and attach elastic IPs, let's say even bring your own IP because you have a certain IPs that you've brought from your on-prem into AWS and you want to reuse that. Uh, now when you do that, uh, your end users have certain all these IPs whitelisted in their firewall. They won't have to re-whitelist or make any changes to that aspect, right? Um, meanwhile, you can use, under certain conditions, you can use network ACLs around the subnet uh, for your NLB to control traffic, right? Um, and NACLs might have their limitations, but you know, if, if, if that suits your use case, you can use it for uh, filtering what IPs can access your server. So cool, so with that, um, you know, no longer you, your users don't have to make any changes to their firewall con configuration. And um, with this whole setup now, you know, you've migrated to uh, AWS Transfer for SFTP and your users, uh, you know, it was completely transparent to them. Um, I'm just gonna quickly go over a couple of key use cases that, um, you know, customers have built, just to give you an idea of how customers have used this. Uh, one of them is Blue TV. 
Uh, they have built a scalable media distribution platform in AWS, and an aspect of which they required SFTP was to receive video mezzanine files from producers, right? And they wanted to, or, or content aggregators, and they, they wanted to store it in S3 and make it available to their end users. Um, the other one was they wanted to offload their CDN logs to S3, and then that was their CDN was they were able to do that via SFTP, so that then they could use Amazon EMR to uh, investigate their logs for information. Um, the other one is um, Open. Uh, they built a cloud-based um, core banking engine. Similarly, you know, they were managing their own SFTP server. Now, they, for them, having that server host key was very important because uh, their end users, uh, you know, they, they, it was in their industry, those type of errors are just def definitely not taken uh, you know, lightly. So now they were able to prevent that error from occurring. Um, this is just their general architecture using all these services. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to Doug from Bose so he can walk us through his story of using the service. Thank you. So at Bose, um, we, uh, well, I guess I'll start with who I am. So I've been at Bose for 20 years, and uh, I've worked in IT that whole time. I've done a lot of different things over that time. Uh, I've been using AWS personally since 2009 and professionally since 2016, I guess. And I'm a developer, engineer, and innovator. Uh, I'd like to talk about how we implemented our SFTP. Uh, so Bose, this is our, our brand promise, helping people reach their fullest human potential so they can feel more, do more, and be more. Might not be the Bose you're thinking of, but this is the Bose we are. So uh, we use SFTP, as I assume many of the people in the room do, because it's been a standard for 20 years. And uh, you know it's very important to our business that it's stable and uh, highly available. Uh, we, um, we went through an exercise of moving all of our on-premise data centers into AWS, and we were left with a few things in a DMZ, including our SFTP offering. So we uh, saw opportunity to use this service that was announced last year. Uh, so we seized that opportunity. Running an SFTP server in the cloud is uh, you know, not for the faint of heart. Uh, there's a lot of things that you need to be aware of to do it securely. Uh, and we saw a lot of value in using this service to buy that security and vigilance as a service from Amazon. So we migrated hundreds of SFTP accounts with a small migration team, and uh, we really enjoyed having the AWS SDK to be able to interact with that instead of having uh, the traditional um, you know, Unix or, or Linux-based uh, opportunities. We did have a couple of challenges during our migration. So uh, we actually migrated uh, two days after CloudFormation support was announced. So that was great that CloudFormation was there. We were able to seize that. But there was no CH root jail available at the time. Uh, that was since uh, announced in September of 2019, and it's definitely the way to go. Uh, CH root jail allows you to create an environment where your users only see their home directory, and they can't see the bucket name or anything else. Uh, definitely the, the, best, the best way to move forward with, uh, with SFTP. Uh, we also had some cases where we needed more than the 10 SSH keys, RSA keys, to authenticate. And uh, we were uh, pleased that the service team was able to expand that number for us. So we had some legacy uh, accounts that had up to maybe 40 keys. Um, and we've seen no, uh, no issues on performance even using that many keys. 
So when we started, we started with that basic implementation with the service-hosted SFTP transfer um, with the S3 bucket. Um, we did a little bit of testing with some of the uh, partners, and we found that we did indeed need to whitelist. So we implemented that VPC with a network load balancer, and uh, that worked much better for us. So essentially, it's a VPC island that's not even connected to our corporate network, uh, and you still have S3 and SFTP in order to interact with the actual uh, files and directories that are stored behind transfer. So uh, Bose Corporation had a couple additional security requirements. So we're using RSA keys uh, for our authentication of users universally. Um, and we had a requirement that we wanted to expire those keys 90 days after they've been presented to the server. Um, and so that mean, meant that we needed to maintain a key history so that we would know if we'd seen that key before, uh, et cetera. And we also uh, needed some additional metadata, who has this key? and uh, you know, where, where do they store it maybe. Um, and we had a strong desire to allow people to um, manage their own keys and rotate the internal users can rotate their own keys. So uh, with these additional requirements, we, uh, we, we looked at how we were going to uh, move forward. So we, in our phase three, we decided to enforce the RSA keys with DynamoDB and Lambda basically wrapping with the SDK, the transfer service. And then uh, using some additional services, we were able to create a React front end to allow us to uh, allow the users to do that self-service rotation. So I'm gonna walk you through this a little bit. So uh, here's our complete API, uh, and we'll step through it a piece at a time. So we have the same pattern with the VPC and the island, uh, not connected to the network with transfer, and using the SDK, we're able to link it. We're using DynamoDB to hold all of the, uh, all of the metadata, uh, who has which key. Uh, we incorporated, uh, um, it's, it's nice having no SQL for these types of things. We were able to incorporate uh, things where the users can store where they're putting the key so that when we tell them to rotate it, they know where it is. Uh, we're using AWS AppSync. If you haven't looked at AWS AppSync, it is a GraphQL. Uh, it's a, uh, like a newer style API tool. Uh, and it allows you to very quickly create a rich API and, uh, and use it with Cognito, which is the next bucket here, um, to do your identity uh, control, your IDP. So we're using you know, Cognito to identify our users and to authenticate them when they come in to use either the API or the front end. And we're tying all of this together with the AWS Amplify service, which was, I think, originally intended for mobile but it really allows you to um, have a single page application and bring it together with Cognito. It will, create that, uh, it will create that login page for you, which you can brand, and it's a gate to be able to, to interact with the API. So it's really a very elegant solution. So again, this is all um, things that we've built up in order to control how the keys are used. So, we expire the keys after 90 days, and the users can come with this front end and rotate them either before or after that time. If it's after that time, then they don't have access via SFTP until they come and rotate their key. So here's the complete API again. Um, and uh, you know it was really an exciting, uh, exciting project. 
So we were able to do this in a period of weeks. It was very quick, actually. Um, we were able to enforce the key rotation and send some emails before those keys expire. Uh, and we actually enjoyed a lot of the enhancements to CloudWatch logs. Uh, when we first started, the logs were a little bit, uh, didn't have all the information we needed, but um, the service team actually added a lot of rich information. It's actually uh, um, fabulous. So. And uh, for next steps for us, uh, we're going to be using S3 events to notify partners when files are ready, potentially, uh, or either through Amazon EventBridge or SNS. Uh, this maybe would mean that they wouldn't need to come and pull frequently, which is sort of industry practice in some places. Uh, we deployed with CloudFormation, and we may move this into a CDK environment. Uh, the Cloud Development Kit is a newer approach where you can use TypeScript or some other languages, Python, Node, uh, in order to write your code in that language, and then it cross-compiles into CloudFormation for you. And then uh, we're also looking at using the same pattern in other SFTP use cases at Bose. So thank you. I'm going to hand it back to Smitha. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Um, with that, I'd like to introduce um, Atul from Verisk, and uh, he'll talk through his story as well. Thank you. Hey, Smitha. Hi, everyone. My name is Atul Bal. I head up cloud infrastructure at Verisk Analytics. So a little bit about us. Um, we are a data analytics company servicing customers in primarily three industries, en energy, insurance, and financial services. We've been doing this for quite a while, coming up upon 50 years now. We're now publicly traded. We have a global presence operating in about 30 countries worldwide. And what's important about Verisk, and it's relevant to this conversation, is that we are really a family of member companies. We grow largely through acquisition, and a lot of these companies maintain a fair amount of autonomy and independence. So we have distinct data owners, application owners, many different DevOps teams. Where I sit in the center, part of the cloud center of excellence, we provide guidance, best practices, um, accelerators, um, provide some oversight and governance for all of the various teams that are doing great work in the cloud. As a company, we're definitely on a mission to move all of our workloads from on-premise data centers to the cloud, and very much a cloud-first mindset for any new initiative. Partnered early on with AWS for obvious reasons, a leader in the industry, but more importantly, very reactive to customer feedback, which is really great to see. And also in alignment with our organizational hierarchy, we definitely follow the multi-account strategy at, um, at AWS. So we have hundreds of Amazon accounts, hundreds of VPCs, pretty much in every region Amazon offers services in, which is also relevant to this conversation. So SFTP, it's been around for a while. It will continue to be around for a while. Uh, it's a commonly used secure method to get data into and out of our infrastructure whether it's partners, data providers, employees, customers. The way we've been managing this traditionally with our on-premises solution is a very beefy, centralized, complex system. Um, it does the job, but it's no fun to manage. Um, and we felt like it doesn't really scale well. It doesn't really fit with what we're trying to do in the cloud. So we started looking at other options. So in general, when we do anything in AWS, it gives you the opportunity to experiment, to try new things. So SFTP was no different. So early on, we tried a lot of different things, whether it was the app teams, whether it was us in the center, homegrown solutions, commercial solutions, hybrid solutions, leveraging that, that uh, um, platform I mentioned earlier. 
uh, nothing really seemed to stick. Um, and what happened was a lot of lack of consistency, a lot of fragmentation, um, and a lot of the pain points really didn't go away. Now we had servers in many, many different accounts and VPCs. We still had to worry about hardening them, patching, network security, high availability. That pain point really didn't go away, and in fact, it got amplified because now instead of one central place to worry about that, it's all over the place. So it can step you through what that journey looked like early on when we thought, hey, let's just spin this up on EC2s. Simple enough, you spin up an EC2 server, give it a public IP, maybe mount an S3 bucket, there's your SFTP solution, right? Not quite secure enough, so you start thinking about network segmentation, private subnet for um, protecting some, some data from a network layer. Then you start thinking about high availability, you go multi-AZ, introduce load balancers. You start thinking about identity management, so you introduce some level of directory service, whether it's AD, LDAP, manage AD, or so on. Sometimes other storage platforms are in the mix, such as EFS. So what do we have here? Um, it's a variety of solutions, because keep in mind, people are trying different versions of this in, in our various accounts. A lot of moving parts. You still see a lot of servers in this diagram. And in fact, it doesn't look very different than that first diagram I showed you, the solution we're trying to move away from, right? So weren't really liking where this was headed. So last year, when Amazon announced AWS Transfer, we were definitely interested in that. And in particular, um, I noticed the feature of being able to federate identities. That's very important to us. We're, we're strong partners with Okta um, as our identity provider, not only for our internal workforce, but also increasingly for our external customers as well. So being able to um, integrate with Okta was, was seen as a huge win. And we saw this as an opportunity to still have business-aligned infrastructure, so you would have these instances in all these various accounts and regions, but still stitched together in one common identity platform. And as been mentioned, there's little to no infrastructure to worry about. It becomes a platform that you consume instead of infrastructure you have to manage. The target S3 is very cost-effective. It's very flexible for any downstream um, processes. And that's where it really comes down to, right? We, we don't want to focus on the SFTP infrastructure, we want to put our brain powers on what happens next, what happens after the file lands. So I'll quickly walk through um, what that network diagram looks like. It's pretty simple, right? <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. It's an instance mounted to an S3 bucket. We do want to introduce an integration to Okta, so that's pretty straightforward integration. There's a published blog post about this if you're interested. API gateway, Lambda function, Okta tenant. We also make use of the CloudWatch integration, and furthermore, we ship that off to Splunk, which is another important aggregation point for us, considering our multi-account strategy, um, and also a strong uh, technology partner of ours. So, you know, so this solution is a lot more elegant, a lot more cloud-native. It simplifies the data sourcing, the authentication, the logging, very quick to deploy, especially with CloudFormation support now. And again, it allows us to focus on downstream data engineering and analytics. We'll quickly walk through one example of that. This is the analytics lab, uh, which is part of our Wood McKenzie business unit. And what that is is a uh, data consortium model. We source uh, private data sets from various data providers, combine it with public data sets. We aggregate, analyze, and visualize, to put it simply, and take that to market. Uh, so we, we use AWS Transfer as the data sourcing piece of this puzzle, and that's represented simply by the icon over on the left. And um, the smart people at work focused more on the right side of this diagram. So what happens after the data is into our system. 
So there's plenty of other similar projects in the pipeline. Um, what often happens at Verisk is an early adopter, such as WoodMac, proves out that a solution is, is viable and uh, repeatable, and then soon following after that will be several other use cases, several other business units, so it becomes a blueprint that we can repeat and do over and over again. And so we fully expect the same to happen here, and we fully expect that constant feedback loop with the Amazon product team. We've already seen some enhancements since the initial launch last year and expect the same in the months ahead. I'll hand it back to Smitha now. Um, just a few closing comments, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. Um, all the resources that we talked about, a lot of the features, we have a new storage blog, um, so you know, we, we try to write example use cases in depth, in detail, try to share with you how you can use it in your environment, and we provide CloudFormation templates, so I definitely encourage you to visit our website uh, where you'll find links to um, um, a lot of the blog posts and solutions that I talked about today. Um, the service is available in 16 uh, AWS commercial regions, so uh, whichever one suits your need, uh, we have it here in the list. Um, so basically, yeah, the idea is you, know, you want to bring all those file transfers into AWS. Um, quick uh, you know, uh, summary on pricing. The endpoint is priced at 30 cents uh, an hour, and data upload and download fees are priced at 4 cents a gigabyte. And, Hey, uh, I encourage you to go to our console and get started and um, try it out today. Um, we have a few related sessions, um, you know, related to more data migrations, uh, how to get your data into AWS. Uh, we also have a builder session so that, uh, you know, it's more hands-on and how you can build your uh, SFTP uh, server. Uh, we also have a chalk talk lineup uh, with a couple of interesting use cases that we'd like to do a demo on, so if you're interested in that and some training and certification, so thank you. Um, with that, we'd like to open up the floor to any Q&A.